So tell me, tell me, tell me a great story. Tell you a great story. All right. So uh, I spent six seasons in the minor leagues, right? Uh, I show up before the Marlins drafted me out of Georgia Tech in 1996 as a 69th round draft pick, which they don't even have 69 rounds anymore. Uh, so I'm about two or three years into my career in the minor leagues, and I'm in minor league camp in Vieira, Florida. And I walk into the locker room, and there's a note in my locker that says, report to the big league stadium you're playing in today's game. So I spent the better part of 10 minutes trying to figure out which one of my jerk friends was trying to play a trick on me. Turns out it was real. It was a real letter. And so I, I load up, get in the golf cart, drive across the street up to the big league stadium for spring training game. And I walk in the locker room. And uh, I'm, half these guys, I got their baseball cards under my bed still, right? Like, I mean, I was... You know, like who? Uh, John Oler, or no, uh, uh, Kevin Brown, uh, Jeff Conine. Uh, just, it was the 97 World Series team. And so uh, I show up and there's my name on a, on a jersey. So I knew I was in the right place. Put on the jersey and go down to the bullpen. And I watch about seven innings of baseball. And uh, all of a sudden the phone rings and they said, get Duncan loose. My heart was pounding, right? I mean, I'd waited for this moment my whole life, and I threw like two pitches. I said, I'm loose. And uh, I jog in there, and we're playing the Mets. And, the, and uh, of course, I knew how this was going to go, Steve. I was going to throw, uh, I was going to strike out the side in like nine or ten pitches and walk into the. Be done. Walk, well, until they wanted to sign me to a multi year contract when I got in the dugout, right? I just knew how this was going to play out. And uh, so I show up, and uh, first pitch, guy hits a line drive to right field. I mean, it was about 250 miles an hour. I was like, all right, he got lucky. Next pitch, two pitches in. Guy hits a line drive to right field, same thing. And I was like, well, okay, these guys are a little better than I thought they might be. So the third guy, I started nibbling a little bit, and I walk him. Bases loaded, no outs. Exactly what I had thought my entire life, how this was going to play out. So then the, the announcer says, now batting the uh, first baseman, John Olerud, who at the time, in 1990, whatever it was, he was the best hitter in baseball. He was about six foot eight, 250 pounds. He, he was a professional. A stud. A stud. He gets in a batter's box, and my knees are knocking. I'm scared to death. I was like, God, I knew I should have quit baseball when I was in Little League. You know, all those doubts. And uh, I show up, and I get him 3-2, three, three balls, two strikes. And the catcher calls timeout, and he jogs out there. And he looks me right square in the eye. He says, can you throw a changeup? I said, yeah, I, I don't normally throw a changeup, but I've been practicing, practicing my whole life to throw a changeup. Yeah, I'll throw it. Why? He says, because if you throw him that rinky-dink fastball, he's going to tear your head off. And sure enough, I go in there and I throw him a 3-2 changeup. He pops it straight up to the shortstop. Next guy comes up, rolls over, ground ball, double play, inning over. Awesome. If I if I would have if I would have walked him on that pitch, I'd probably still be on that mound trying to get him out. <laughs> that shaped my whole life. That shaped that book that you've got there in your lap. <laughs> hey everybody, I'm here. I'm here with my good buddy Jeff Duncan. He's also our lieutenant governor, and he's written a new book called GOP 2.0. And so I asked him uh, to come talk to me about that. And back when Jeff uh, decided he wanted to run for lieutenant governor, he and I got together one morning for a cup of coffee or lunch. I can't remember what it was in downtown Alpharetta. And uh, he said, I'm running for lieutenant governor. And I said, I'm in. And me and my buddy Russ Queso and Jeff Levitan threw a little party for him. And ever since then, he's taking my phone call. So I feel like that's pretty good. So anyway, uh, you know, there's been a lot going on in our state and a lot going on in politics, and I uh, feel real fortunate that we got Jeff here to talk to us about this. So, Jeff, I mean, you had mentioned something about starting this thing out, about there's a uh, kind of beginning to what got this thing going. Tell, tell me about it. 
Well, it really started about the time I first met you. Uh, you know, years ago, right up the street here, uh, you took the time to listen to my story, and I talked about policy over politics being kind of my platform. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like it was time to put real conservative policies on display instead of playing, you know, backdoor petty politics. And so I ended up winning that race, right, with your help and the help of many others. But uh, I went in as, as lieutenant governor, and I really test drove that model at the Capitol of putting policy over politics, right? Because we got a good thing going here in Georgia, right? we got a growing right, economy right. and certainly have a, a, you know, our best days are still in front of us. Not a lot of states can mm-hmm. say that. And so I put it on display, and, and then, you know, the events of November played out where, unfortunately, the guy I voted for didn't win. But then our integrity and uh, our, uh, you know, our, our election process got called into question. And I went and dug and did, did the research, talked to the right people, talked to the investigators. And nobody had an ounce of fraud. Nobody had a, a single scenario that they could prove that anything you know, malicious happened. And so I started thinking about what's, what's next? How do we come back and win again as Republicans? And so I drafted a GOP 2.0 idea on the back of a napkin and quickly became a book. And now it's a national movement. I was just in New Hampshire last week telling folks up there, what I believe in, and, and it really is about being conservative with our policies, but reminding folks of those policies, reminding them why they should vote for a Republican, and uh, and doing it all with a better tone, right? You know, just like we're talking here, right? right. Even if we did, there's something we disagree on. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's haircuts. Uh, <laughs> we disagree on something, but we're going to talk about it, right? We're going to have a conversation about it, just like we do in our boardrooms. Be adults in the room. On our ball fields, and that's ultimately how we get things done in America, not screaming and calling each other names. So how did all of that, let's go back to when we had the election and the fraud and all. What happened in November from where you were sitting? What 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 did you see? And- yeah, it was there, there was a lot of hysteria and, and um, you know, there was a lot of... Uh, you voted for Trump. I right? voted for him. In fact, the, the opening story in the book is me, me on stage two days before the election in Rome, Georgia, really trying to, trying to you know, kickstart the suburbs to come out and show up and vote for him. Uh, you know, an eye-opening experience I talk about in the book was on that stage with 30,000, you know, red hats out in the audience, all the folks who had voted for me, you know, two years beforehand, I made a statement trying to not speak to them. I know those folks were going to vote for Donald Trump, but trying to speak to the cameras out there that were pumping that, that uh, rally into the suburbs was, hey, our policies are so good as Republicans, they even help the people that don't vote for us. And I got booed. And I remember walking off stage and sitting there with my three kids and my wife saying, there's a problem. Right? If we're not if we're not so proud about the policies that we stand for that even help the people who don't vote for us, we're gonna have a problem trying to win the suburbs. And that's ultimately what happened. Fast forward a couple of days, all the rumors and all the conspiracy stuff started flying around and uh, I knew it wasn't true, uh, but I was certainly asking all the questions I could ask. How did you know it wasn't true? How did you come to that conclusion? Yourself. It's a great question. So obviously there was investigations going on and there was all kinds of things, you know, really, really playing out with the Secretary of State's office, the Attorney General's office, the Governor's office, the Elections office. All that was happening at real time. Mm-hmm. But the number that gave me the most confidence that, that the, the election was fair and accurate and legal was that 53.7% of Georgians voted for a Republican state senator. I'm the president of the Senate. I spent all my time and effort trying to make sure that 35 Republican state senators showed back up for their next term. And 34 out of those those 35 did. So 53.7% of Georgians voted for a Republican state senator. Unfortunately, only 49.5% of those folks voted for a Republican president. And that told me that unless it was the greatest conspiracy that was multinational, multi-party, 
that was kept quiet, financed from some sort of underground network of you know wealthy donors and blah blah blah, whatever the other parameters were. That this this wasn't a rigged election. This was just a bad election for Republicans. So that lets you know that there were enough Republicans there to have gotten him elected, but some of them chose not to vote. Cho- chose not to vote for him. Uh, chose to skip it. I mean, there's there's like 15, and I talk about this in the book. There's all kinds of data points that show to. You know, in 2016, when, when you know, I, I don't know who you voted for, but I voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Um, and, you know, there was this, the rural America loved him. The suburbs, for the most part, gave him a hall pass. They said, you know what, we can look past the rude and crude because this guy's going to go into D.C. and he's going to upset the apple cart. And that's exactly what he did. He went in and they looked the other way. But in 2020, the suburbs couldn't look as far past the rude and crude thing. They couldn't explain it in the boardrooms or in the ball fields or even in their own churches, right? How do you stand up to some of this stuff? And, and, and that was their prerogative. The other interesting part is he had the greatest campaign slogan ever, drain the swamp. It may, for, for, the, for now until the end of time, it may be the greatest campaign slogan ever. Still like that. Right? I love it. In fact, I, I still love to, to every opportunity to drain the swamp. Yeah. The reality is, I think those fiscal conservatives out there recognize that he didn't drain the swamp. He unfortunately fed the swamp. At $7.8 trillion in additional national debt, we didn't shrink the size of government, we grew it. Uh, we didn't disrupt the way business is done in D.C., we, we, just, we just redirected it. Um, and so he, he could have done a better job with that. And so you lost fiscal conservatives, you lost the suburbs, you still had rural America, you still had folks like me that are diehard conservatives that voted for him, but the unfortunate part is it came up short. And so after the election, what happened? Because, I mean, I'm sure he called you, right, or call, talked about well, you. Well, call, he called me via Twitter. Uh, uh, so, I, look, I didn't, I didn't work against Donald Trump. I worked against the conspiracy theory for two reasons. One, I, I, I stood behind the election process here in Georgia. It was a fair and legal election. We counted every legal vote. Uh, we certainly put our best foot forward. Uh, the second part was I was campaigning hard against the, the conspiracy theories, because I wanted Kelly Leffler and David Perdue to win their, their runoffs. Right. And I was worried that if we tried to stir the pot too much about all these fake news conspiracy conspiracy stories, that folks weren't going to show back up in the runoff. And that's exactly that's what happened. Wild. We had nearly 400,000 Republicans that didn't show up and vote for Kelly Leffler and David Perdue. That did in the first That election. did in the November election. That didn't show up in the runoff. And the unfortunate part for that in Georgia is we lost two Republican U.S. Senators. But nationally, as a Republican, we lost the majority. So we have no majorities in the U.S. House. We have no majorities in the U.S. Senate. We certainly don't have a majority in the White House and certainly no friend of the conservative cause right now. So what, what goes on is so those two lose, and now we've, we've, we've got a, a state that's the way it is now. How do we start making that change to come back? Because, you know, we got Herschel running, right, yep. and, and Kelvin King and some guys like that. Uh, we got some really good good candidates up there. What I talk about this in the book, um, in that the, the, the pet project, policy, empathy, and tone. As Republicans, we need to, we need to just smother ourselves in being better at, at reminding folks of the policies that we're good at. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a couple of policies that we need, to, we need to move our feet on in a conservative manner, right? I think as Republicans, we've lost the ability to, to, to really own any sort of ground on immigration because I want border security more than anybody. I want it for just not only the immigration issue, but human trafficking and, and illegal drug mm-hmm. uh, you know, trafficking back and forth. 
Um, I think we also need to talk about the 16 million undocumented folks that are here, right? Some of them are better than our, our economies. Why do you think the Democrats feel differently about that? What's their side of that? I don't know. But, uh, and quite honestly, I think that if Republicans owned the issue, I think Americans would side with us if we talk about how do we keep border security. Because I think even Democrats realize that border security matters, yeah. especially with what we're watching play out with the Biden administration. And then secondly, on ta having that conversation of figuring out who should stay and who needs to go. But all that to be said, I think Republican secret sauce to winning elections, whether it be Herschel Walker or the other candidates that you're talking about, Latham Sadler's a qualified candidate, Gary Black's out there, um, and also other races across the country. We've got to focus on reminding folks on the policies that we're good at, and we need to do it with an encouraging tone. Uh, we don't pick leaders in our communities or in our businesses that, that, that you know, uh, speak down to people or, or, or make mm -hmm. people feel lesser than, than, than they deserve to be. Mm -hmm. We elect leaders that pick people up and, and really, you know. Is that like a contract with America kind of thing? Yeah, I, I think it is, but it's a contract with ourselves as Republicians to stop being addicted to 280 80 character tweets and 10 second sound bites. We need, we, we need to have more from our leaders, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, calling, calling it for calling balls and strikes here, I don't think any of us would ever pick Donald Trump or Joe Biden to be the president of any company that we're invested in. Right? They just don't have the acumen or, or, the, or, the, or the, the personality to do it. So we need to expect more out of our next president. We need to expect more out of our leaders than just people who can get up and, and, and beat a drum. So what about faith? You talk about faith, love, and politics. What, what, where does that play in? This whole journey into politics started uh, for me and my wife sitting in North Point Church just a few miles from here. Andy Stanley one day about 10 years ago uh, kicked everybody in the shin by saying, Y'all have gotten really good at complaining, but not enough of y'all are finding your lanes to do something about it. And he said it as a nonpartisan. He said it as somebody who just wanted us to live out our faith, uh, whether it was to volunteer in schools or, or contribute more money or jump into politics like I did. And so I started this path being, you know, just kind of challenged to, to participate. And quite honestly, it's been a guiding force for me and Brooke on those tough days when you're sitting there getting just bludgeoned by a sitting president on Twitter or on TV for just saying the truth, uh, standing up for, for what I told my three kids I believed in. Yeah, uh, It's certainly that faith element gave me uh, that added courage to stand up and do the right thing. But I think from a faith piece, the way I, I position it in the book, and it's not to oversell the Christian faith, which is just the one I prescribe to, uh, it's to sell faith as, as a whole, as something that, that's bigger than just our little petty grievances. Something you believe in too? Yeah. It's something something that's a core principle, and, and this whole notion of love your neighbor needs to go further than just uh, Sunday mornings or, or whatever day you show up in church or listen to your devotional. Love your neighbor gets us over these gaps in America, right? If your neighbor's out of work, go help them out. Go help them find a job. Go take their kids to school. Go drive them to the doctors. You know, go bring them dinner. Whatever you can do to love your neighbor. Love your neighbor also is more than just your neighbor. Right? We know that. Love your neighbor is trying to find somebody to help. And to me, that's how we close the gaps. And as a Republican, that's how we start to truly build that, that bridge to those folks that maybe think we don't care about people that, that have issues or have challenges. But there's a lot of people that are saying that the Republicans need to fight back more against the Democrats. The Democrats are doing all kinds of stuff, and they need to fight back. What do you think about that? I think the best way to fight back is win. Right? <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, we fought a whole lot in 2020, but we lost. Yeah. And uh, we lost the U.S. Senate. We lost the White House. I think we fight, but we fight with a purpose. We fight with a cause. And, and to me, that has to just be more genuine. right? We can't just 
just just fight for you know um, as like prize fighters. Mm-hmm. We need to go out there with a purpose, right? You know, we don't hire CEOs to pick on their competition. We hire CEOs to to drive the bottom line. That's a good point, a right? You just want to, you gotta you just gotta do what you gotta do to grow your piece of the pie, right? Instead of and this is a winning th- this is a winning strategy. GOP 2.0 is the framework for uh, a, a legitimate plan that can win. Uh, and then give us the opportunity to have conservative strategies. And look, if America doesn't agree with our strategies, then they won't reelect us. My bet is, I think if we show up to work every day and we put a, uh, a better tone out there, that America is going to continue to reward conservative leaders because it just makes sense. It makes sense when they're trying to run their business with le- less regulations and lower taxes. Uh, it helps their, their communities when they're safer and they don't even remotely think defund the police is a good idea. I think that's a bad idea. I think a majority of Republicans think that that's a bad idea. I think a majority of Americans are going to support a strong you know, national security plan and not have another Afghanistan fire up with you know, quick, you know, quick indecisive decisions. Mm-hmm. So that, you brought an interesting point. So you know, I, mean, I know the governor's got the state patrol helping out with the, I guess, police in the city of Atlanta. I mean, that's been, as far as I'm concerned, a disaster. The, the issue in Atlanta, I've talked about this nationally all over TV. I've written op-eds that have run in national newspapers. The issue in Atlanta is a crisis with crime. If, and I was just down there. If, you, if you're down in Atlanta now, uh, it's a fraction of what it was um, you know, two years ago. And we, we, can, we can account some of that to COVID, but I've mm-hmm. been to other big cities. I've been to Charlotte. I've been to, uh, I was just in DC. I was in uh, uh, Charleston, South Carolina. They don't, they're, they're back to business. Atlanta is what it looks like today, a shell of what it was because of crime. Yeah. Because the unfortunate position is some of the leaders down there made this quick, quick notion of defund the police and let that out there. And they sent the signal to criminals that it's okay to be here. And they sent the signal to law enforcement officers that you're not welcome here. That's the biggest problem. problem isn't and it? and enough, we enough. lost hundreds and hundreds of qualified police police uh, officers, law enforcement agents down there that, that just didn't want to be there. Yeah. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a crisis issue and it's going to take a long time to turn around. And I'm proud to work with a governor who's willing to, to deploy assets like the state patrol to try to assist. Uh, I'm going to work in this legislative session on a couple of big ideas around trying to find ways to pay officers more, hire more, and train them better, mm-hmm. uh, and try to get this, you know, get get these streets back from from the criminals. What about the Buckhead thing, the Buckhead City thing? Where you what do you think about that? So there's a robust conversation about Buckhead. Uh, I'm concerned that the folks that are on the surface supporting it are trying to just make it off as you vote yes on a city and your crime goes away tomorrow. That, that, that's not reality. The, the reality is there's a crime issue that needs to be solved in all of Atlanta. Uh, and uh, specifically, Buckhead uh, needs, to, needs to have more officers there. They need to have more uh, investigators and, and more technology to help them combat that crime. But uh, the, the cityhood movement to this point has not been one that's been validated on what it would do to the school system, mm-hmm. uh, what it would do for all the bond packages that are out there and tied to it. Uh, or also what it would do when you remove, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars out of the mix that takes away from those resources for law enforcement officers in the city of Atlanta. Uh, I have serious concerns that the cityhood of Buckhead could actually make the situation dramatically worse almost immediately. Uh, so I've tried to hold the folks uh, that are in charge of kind of pushing the city movement accountable to have a better explanation as to what, what, what that might look like. Hmm. And then what about 
your relationship with the governor? How are y'all on the same page on a lot of this stuff, especially the election stuff? Seems like y'all. Yeah, Governor Kemp has done an amazing job of leading us through some of the most difficult times. I mean, if I think about from the time you and I met, and I was out <laughs> literally going door to door begging for the job to where we're at now, I mean, we've had a uh, obviously a global pandemic. Uh, a whipsawing economy that literally in a matter of hours saw a 14% plunge in employment statewide. Huge. To where now it's almost, uh, we're below 3% unemployment, so it's been whipsawing. We've had um, social unrest of epic proportion over an extended period of time. Uh, just you name it, we faced it. The governor's done an incredible job of showing up every day as a conservative, as a leader. Uh, and, uh, you know, Republicans are going to have the great honor of being able to reward him by reelecting him for four more years as, as literally the most conservative governor in Georgia's history. So what are the four C's you talk about? Churches, charities, corporations, and citizens. Okay. Uh, I stumbled on this little idea in my mind. We have a program at North Point called Be Rich. Right. And it's, it's invested in a number of charities around Alpharetta and whatnot. And it really just kind of drove me as I first got into state government uh, as a state representative that we were all trying to solve problems with, even Republicans were doing this, with bigger government programs. Right? Right. We're trying to do the right thing, but the reality is a government program is like the clumsiest organization you could ever create even on its best day, right? If you fully fund and fully staff a government program, it's only ever gonna show up and stabilize somebody in poverty. It's never gonna actually spin them out of poverty. Right. So watching you know places like North Point and other churches and, and, and charities have, have been successful doing this, we empower a church or a charity or, or a corporation uh, or a citizen that wants to solve a problem around poverty. We empower them. Uh, they're going to be better at volunteerism. They're going to be better at uh, innovation. And they're going to come to come to work every day with an uh, exit strategy on the tip of their tongue. So you're saying give them the money instead of starting yeah, so, paying? Or they so, solve for so, grant? Or what? I mean, how do they get the money? All the above. Let's let's look for ways to, to lean into the community to solve those problems and not bigger government, whether it be local government or state government or right. federal government. So one big idea that I came up with, it's one of the reasons why I get to be lieutenant governor, was a, was a big idea around investing through the four C's in rural hospitals. So I was waking up every day going to the Capitol and they were talking about these 54 rural hospitals that were about ready to fail every day, right? Like literally they couldn't meet payroll some, some weeks. And so I created a tax credit program that allows corporations and citizens, two of the four C's, to invest directly in a rural hospital. And in return, you get a dollar for dollar, 100% tax credit back. So if you want to go out and write a check for $10,000 to a rural hospital because you grew up there or you got a business interest yeah. there, or you just heard the story and wanted to do it, you get to take $10,000 off what you pay the state of Georgia in your income tax, dollar for dollar. That's huge. Overnight, we watched $60 million worth of money flow directly to 54 rural hospitals, and they got to do what they wanted, right? That was the secret sauce, was no strings attached, right? It was a hospital that needed to pay down debt that was choking them, a hospital that needed to buy new equipment so they could compete with a bigger hospital, hospitals that needed to pay doctors or technicians or nurses more so they wouldn't leave to go to the bigger system. All right. Whatever they wanted to do, we just required them to fill out a little 990 form at the end of the year that said, here's who gave us money and here's how we spent it. And that way the public could hold them accountable whether they were spending it well or not. And overnight, we watched that $60 million and those hospitals went from you know, just survival mode to thriving. And that's still an ongoing? Still thing. ongoing. And we're going to look for opportunities to expand it this year. We're going to look for other opportunities to empower communities. So we've done the same thing with the movie. we got a movie tax credit, and we also got the uh, gold program, right? The, how are those being? 
looked at. I, I structured a lot of the, the the technical parts of the rural hospital tax credit after the gold scholarship program, yeah. where you know you can give dollars directly to a, a school uh, with with a cause, and uh, in, in return you get a tax credit. I just I feel like we we, we got to not stop thinking that that citizens are better decision you know not better decision makers than government, right? right, right. Bureaucrats don't make very good decisions, right? They all sit in cubes and. And, and they're great people, and I like them, but it doesn't make them better decision makers than the taxpayers. So this this whole 2.0 thing, what was what again was the fi- defining moment on? I'm not going to run. I'm going to focus on this. So I was uh, on this this circuit, uh, unfortunate circuit. I did over a hundred national television shows, meet the press, you know, uh, State of the Union, you you name it. I was on a show almost every day. And uh, I stumbled into it. You know, a couple of people started saying, "Well, I, I get that, that you're fighting for the election uh, in Georgia, but but what's the new plan that you keep talking about?" And I just stumbled into a GOP 2.0, just kind of came off my tongue. And, and I had some friends hold me accountable. They said, "Look, go go write the plan and go make it happen." And it's caught fire. I mean, our website GOP2.org is signing people up every day, all day, from all over the country. Donors, people are small dollar donations, big wealthy donors. Uh, folks like you know New Hampshire invited us up to give some speeches. Uh, South Carolina, we're going to tr- continue to travel the country. There's a vacuum of leadership in this country on both political parties. There's a vacuum of leadership. Been kind of everybody's digging in for their area, and and we need real leadership. And I hope GOP 2.0 plays a significant part in shaping who that Republican nominee is. And and truly, if done right, I think this this concept, this movement actually improves the rules of engagement between both parties. Uh, Because, you know, I've learned 46 years of my life that I rarely come to the table with the best idea, right? I may come to the table with a good idea, but somebody else can help me make it the best idea. And oftentimes that's just working either across the aisle or across geography or just across kind of ideals. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think we can do that as Republicans and continue to, to, to keep the conservative slant on all these policy positions that I think line up with the majority of Americans. I've I've heard different reasons why the Democrats won the race in Georgia. And one of the things that I heard was that they did a better job of getting these ballots out to people, that they mailed a bunch of ballots out to places where they were heavily Democratic and they were able to get people to do absentee voting. And that maybe within itself was enough to skew the numbers if it would have been a 50-50 race. Is there any anything to that? Look, I I take great pride in being a good umpire. And so if I'm going to call balls and strikes, it means calling them on your own team. And and, and we got got boat raced on the ground game. There's no doubt about it. The Democrats were... Yeah, what did they do? The Democrats were out there uh, getting folks uh, aware of an election upcoming. They were out there getting them to sign up and register that weren't registered. And then they were out there messaging to get them to the polls. Uh, You know, that really hurt us in the runoff. Yeah. Uh, if you think about it, you know, I think back to the day of the runoff. So here we are fighting for the very conservative nature of the U.S. Senate on a national platform between Kelly Leffler and David Perdue. And, um, you know, I told you a minute ago that 400,000 Republicans didn't show up. Yeah. Well, our state GOP was sending tweets out about election, uh, you know, court cases being heard in, you know, some part of the state as opposed to driving people to the polls. Uh, we're not we're not going to win elections relitigating the past, even if it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. We're going to win elections by looking forward. We're not going to 
grow our brand of conservatism by looking in the rearview mirror. We're going to do it by telling people where we're headed in the windshield. Right, right. So did, you know, was there, what, I mean, what did, what did all that, how did that all work out with Raffensperger and what everybody was saying? He allowed Stacey Abrams to do something or sign something. What's, what's the, yeah, it, what happened? On yeah. That? It, it was like every story. It was it was so unfortunate to watch, right? That's a half story. It was a it was a lawsuit that uh, I think the attorney general actually signed off on. Everybody was on board with it, right? I I had no purview to it. It didn't didn't fall into my job description. But everything started as like a a, a partial truth. Then they'd go out and somebody would cook up a story that kind of fit the narrative, and then all of a sudden it'd be get pumped out on social media and on the airwaves. And before you know it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting death threats. My wife's getting death threats. You know, we got 24-hour security around the house, all because I'm sitting there saying, look, I'm, unfortunately, the guy I voted for didn't win. We have yet to have any sort of, you know, recognizable fraud. Uh, there's no sort of systemic issues. And, uh, you know, it just started to fall apart from there. All right, tell me, how do you, how are you getting any pleasure that the Braves are in the World Series and they took the All-Star game from Yes, uh, I'm one of those Republicans that hated to see the Democrats politicize it when we lost the All-Star game. It was just a bad deal for a baseball fan that we lost the All-Star game. It terrible. Was, it was a terrible deal. I actually picked up the phone and found my way. I networked my way all the way to, to the commissioner of baseball, one-on-one, just me and him talking and having a conversation. I was doing all I could do to get the game back because as a baseball fan, I wanted to see it. But I wanted to take my kids down there to the battery yeah. and walk them around. And even if I could, couldn't get tickets, I wanted my kids to be there. But we didn't get it. Now... I hate seeing folks in politics politicize the fact that the World Series is back in Atlanta because here's what my stance is. The Braves have had a great season, and I hope they're going to win the World Series, and I don't care to talk about politics when I turn on the game. That's good. That's I good. care to talk about the bullpen and the starting pitching. That, that's what I want to talk about. <laughs> All right, what do I need to ask him, y'all? I want to know – I like this concept. I think it's really cool. But my biggest fear as a young conservative is, is that going to divide the party and not cause anybody It's like Trump policies, or Trump, it's, it's Trump uh, candidates and then non-Trump candidates, which yep. is tough. Yes, so Jeff, are we, are, is this going to divide the party? Is this going to make it like, or is this creating a third party? I mean, what? Yeah, great question. I get asked everywhere I go because at the end of the day, this is about winning, right? This right. isn't about selling books or creating a movement or getting a chance to sit here with you. This, as much as I like you, I know you this is it. about winning, right? And so, yeah. yeah, and and so GOP 2.0, obviously there are candidates out there that uh, are, are Trump-supported candidates and not Trump-supported candidates. This is about post-Trump, right? This is about accepting the, the realities that he's not in office. And between history and self-inflicted wounds, he has 0% chance of ever being the president again. We need to come to that grips as Republicans, and I think that's starting to happen slowly but surely all across the country. And folks are going to show up for a GOP 2.0 candidate in a couple of different lanes. Some are like me that just completely believe in everything, right? The policies, the empathy, and the tone. Some are like my parents' friends. They're like, look, Donald Trump hung the moon. Uh, I'd do anything for him. But, man, I just wish he'd put that cell phone down. We would have won if he would have done that. Right? Yeah. They're going to they're gonna love the tone of 2.0. And then there's this third group of people that are going to be the last ones to get here, but the most important to get here probably are the ones that are going to wake up tired of losing. Right? There's going to be people that are going to lose race, mayor's races in Kansas because they, didn't, they either believed or didn't believe in the big lie. There's going to be people that lose congressional races after long-storied careers of conservatives because they were either with or against Trump. Right? We're going to get tired of losing 
some of these big important races and we're going to want to win. And to me, the reality of between now and the election cycle in 2024, which is only three years away, we got to figure out that strategy to not divide the party, but actually bring the party together. And nothing would make me happier than Donald Trump saying, you know what? I've had a great run at this. I think I did a lot of good things for this country. That would be country. the best thing. But you know what? I'm going to go work on my golf game down at my resort, my mansion, and enjoy the spoils of my riches. Do you think he can do that? I don't think so. So then that means somebody else has got to come up as a candidate. Yeah, and, and that's this process we're going through. And um, win the primary and say, hey, I'm the I'm the person instead of Trump. So you remember that story I started this off with, with, yeah. with uh, John Olerud? So that whole story meant a, bu- a lot about baseball for me. For 20 plus years, it meant you know I had the courage to throw a changeup uh, at the right time. And, and now that story in our house is about being able, being able to throw the right pitch at the right time, mm-hmm. but then having the courage to do it. And GOP 2.0 is all about that. It's about doing the right thing. There's nobody pushing back on GOP 2.0. There's nobody saying this is crazy. You shouldn't remind people of the policies that make sense. Hey, you shouldn't talk about immigration or, or healthcare. Uh, or you shouldn't be more empathetic to grow the size of the tent. Or you know what, that, that better tone stuff, that, that's just stupid. That's never going to win. They believe it works. They're just worried about the timing of it. And so like any entrepreneur, you got to be out in front of the timing a little bit. They just I, need a leader for it. Le- leadership's lonely most days, right? If you're doing it right, yeah, it's lonely. very lonely at the time. But you got to do it. And so hopefully we're cutting some important ground here with GOP 2.0. So, Jeff, do you think there are a lot of people that are starting to come on board with this 2.0? Tide's kind of turning and they're moving away from Trump. I do. Uh, and I watch it play out, you know, almost every hour of every day. Uh, you know, I was downtown earlier today, and, you know, here's how it happens. Somebody walks up to me, and they look both ways, and they make sure nobody can hear them. And they get real close to me, and they say it loud, just loud enough so I can hear them, and they'll say, you know what, Jeff, I'm so proud of you. You know, I'm just proud that you're telling the truth and you're doing the right thing. And I know long term it's going to work out for you. And I do think it's the best thing for our country and for our party. But man, I wish my district was a little more supportive of that. Or I wish we had a little more leadership. Or I wish Trump would just just disappear. Um, And it reminds me a lot about a story that I talk about in the book, a very personal story in the book, about steroids. Um, You know, I, I decided with my wife when I was playing baseball in the late 90s to not use steroids. A lot of my friends were using them, and these were good people, right? These weren't guys using steroids because they were monsters. They were just trying to be good enough to stay employed, to pay their mortgage or, you know, put food on the table. Right. Um, but I used to sit there, and it felt like a short-term sugar high, right? It felt like if I was going to use steroids, I, you know, I was either going to run the risk of getting hurt really early in my career or run the risk of having long-term physical effects and not being able to play golf uh, or just having an asterisk mark over my name like, unfortunately, so many guys have, and they can't yeah. get in the Hall of Fame. And to me, it feels a lot like that with this whole, you know, big lie thing. I just feel like these guys, they're just, they're they're good people just trying to get elected in these conservative districts. And so they're just going along with it because they just have to go along with it in their minds. It's just hard to know that they're going to have an asterisk mark next to their name, right? Eventually, the weight of reality is going to be right, right? The weight of reality is... We got our we, we got our tails whipped. That, that's the, that's the bottom line. We got whipped, and we're going to cycle back, and we're going to be a Republican Party, and the country's going to need us to lead this country because right now we're not headed in the right direction. Right. What 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 are the Democratic friends? How how are they okay with a guy in the White House that doesn't seem to have all his faculties? So, even my closest of friends who are Democrats really can't explain what went on in Afghanistan. They can't explain what's going on on the southern border. They can't explain what his strategy is on, you know, kind of a, a very 
you know, in, inflationary period of time that's affecting everybody and every everybody. every every business, every household's affected by inflation. Um, they can't explain it, and uh, I certainly think that they're 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 scratching their heads. Um, and that this is our opportunity to put a better leadership model forward. There's a whole swath of people who are conservative by recognition, but just didn't vote for Trump for whatever reasons, mostly his tone. Uh, we need to, we need to get them back on our team. Who did they vote for if they didn't vote for Trump? There's a mixed message. I talk about it in the book. I mean, there's some folks that did go the other way and vote for Joe Biden. There's some folks who didn't vote at all uh, on the top of the ticket. We've seen that play out in Georgia. There's just some people just skipped it. I remember George Will saying, I'm not going with this guy on national TV, you know, and I was like, well, who are you going to vote for? He said, it's Republican or Democrat. I guess maybe they voted Libertarian or something. There's a whole swath of higher turnout for Libertarians and third parties all across the country. I mean, it's a mixed bag. Uh, we hit a high watermark and, uh, you know, with we squeezed as many folks out of the rural parts of the, of the country as we could uh, in, in those ardent, you know, Trump supporters. We can get better. Awesome. All right, well, guys, I'm just tickled to to have Jeff here with me today, and you heard a little bit about his 2.0. It's books uh, it's for sale, on sale, online, bookstores. I think you ought to get it and read through it. It's a great read, and um, Jeff, thank you for coming. Appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate right. your friendship.